My name is Eric Solomon. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. Specifically, I'm the campus pastor here at TVC. And I just want to say welcome to all of you who are worshiping with us here on campus. To those of you who are worshiping with us online, I'm really glad to say that we're now able to live stream at 10 a.m. on our YouTube page so that people can join us all together. We can worship together. I'm also really grateful for opportunities, just like what Michael mentioned in the video, opportunities to come together as a church body across all of our campuses with things like an annual meeting where we can actually participate in in what's happening in the church in that particular way, or even to connect in smaller groups, whether online or in person, to read the Bible together even in some, these are really tangible ways to, to love God together to grow together, to reach the world together, to be on mission, even in those groups, for whatever the Lord is calling us to in this season. And another tangible way that we ask people to partner with us is to continue to participate through faithful giving in making this a place where people experience the love of God, right? It is through giving, and by that I mean giving of your time, giving of your skills, giving of your finances, that we're able to, as a community, love one another and love our neighbors. So, In this new year, if you're looking for ways to give your time, you can ask me or Melissa about ways that you can serve on Sunday morning or even throughout the week in outreach opportunities. If you're looking to give up your skills, you can go on our website, trivillagechurch.org slash help. There's a give help, get help pearl where you can sign up and say, hey, I can serve someone in this particular way. And if you're looking to give, you can also go on our website, trivillagechurch.org slash give, or even on your way out, you can give at one of the offering boxes. These are all different ways, but tangible ways to participate in what the church is doing right now in this community. Now, one of the things that I like to say to people when we're kind of saying, hey, you can give, you can be tangible in this particular way, is thank you for partnering with us in ministry, because you really are partners with us in this. It's not just the professionals who do all the ministry. We, as the church, do this ministry. And thinking about partners, I do want to celebrate one of the partners of ministry that, yes, is on our team, but also participates in our community here, and that partner is Jennifer Westring. Uh, Jennifer Westring has actually served as the Kids Life Director here since we launched at TVC. And the reason I want to celebrate her this morning is because she has done so much for this community in serving families, in in loving children, in in participating and building up a team that that does that and disciples the youngest among us, right? So often we say here that they're not the future of the church, they're the church right now. And and Jennifer's on the front lines of that, gathering a bunch of you to participate in that discipleship. And she's done such an amazing job here at Kids Life here at TVC that we're actually promoting her to serve across all of our campuses as the Early Childhood Associate Director. And and I just want to celebrate that. Yes, amen. It means she's not just serving TVC families alone, but she's serving all these families. TVC families, the families at the West Chicago campus, at Iglesia del Pueblo, we're serving all together, again, to build the kingdom of God in these young ones' lives. And so I'm excited to celebrate that. And, And if you're wondering, we have mapped out a plan where Jennifer and I and the rest of the Kids Life team, as we search for the next person that's going to serve TVC Kids Life right here, But she's going to be here in now, and and whenever we find that next person that the Lord has called into this space, Jennifer's going to walk right alongside that person to make sure the changeover is as smooth as possible for our families. But I just wanted to, this morning, even as we begin the search for that person in this new year, to celebrate what the Lord is doing in Jennifer's life, and he's calling her into kind of furthering her calling, if you will, but then also celebrate what the Lord is doing among families and children here as we're building into what the Lord does uh, in this space. And so I want you to pray. So that's one of the things I also wanted to ask. I want you to participate in this search by praying for the next person that the Lord has for, for us here. 
And also praying for Jennifer as she takes on all of these new responsibilities. Pray for wisdom and clarity and discernment as we try to go, okay, how do we continue to serve the people that the Lord is bringing into this place here? Why don't we just take a minute to pray for that and to pray for the upcoming word that we're going to be diving into. God, you are the source of wisdom. You are our mighty God. You are the one that provides everything that we need. And this morning we come before you praising you in this new year for all the ways in which you have provided for us. We anticipate your continued faithfulness because you are true to who you say that you are. And you have proven yourself time and time again in your word and in our lives. And yeah, we confess this morning that we do struggle to depend on our own wisdom, on our own strength, on our own resources. We, we forget you so often because we get caught up thinking that we don't actually need you in the day-to-day. We just think we need you in the big things. And to be honest, sometimes we don't even really want to know you. We kind of want to know a safe version of you. Or you who doesn't make demands on our lives who doesn't drive us into hard and difficult places where we need to trust and depend upon you. And so we confess that and we ask not just for your forgiveness, but for change. In Christ, we know deeply that you and you alone provide for all of our needs and that we need you. In Christ, though we are driven into hard places to trust you, we know that you are always faithful and you work everything out for for our good and for your glory. And so we pray going into this new year that you would provide and that we would have eyes wide open to see how you provide. We we thank you for what you are doing in Jennifer and in, in kids' life as a whole across all of our campuses. We pray that you would continue to use Jennifer to love and serve families and children, to partner with parents, to disciple, to pour into the youngest among us, those who are part of our church right now. And we pray, Lord, that you would Like we said, continue to provide for us in this new year. We pray that you would continue to provide for the missionaries that we as a church body have sent throughout the years. Even as they close out a challenging year, just like we have. Pray that you would grant them perseverance in their work. Innovation even, as they seek new ways to reach people with the gospel. Pray that you would give them hope when they weary like we weary. When they tire like we tire of Zoom meetings and, and trying to figure out all these things. Would you protect them and their families? We thank you for your faithfulness, for the ways in which they're continuing to use their skills and their gifts, their their passions to bring the light of hope, the light of the gospel into the world. And we pray that you would do that in us, in this community, here. We also pray for those that are hurting among us, those who are mentally and physically sick, those who are grieving at the end of a really long year, Lord, those who are struggling financially, those whose marriages are in a hard place, we pray that you would meet them by your Spirit among your people, that you would use us to to love them and serve them. We trust in your faithfulness to us in Christ, and we pray that you would continue to show it to us as we turn to your word, and we pray, Lord, that that you would bless the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Is it really possible to know God? Like, Like actually possible to actually know this God that has revealed himself to us. Not just know a bunch of information about him, but really and truly 
know him. If you ask people, some of them think that God is unknowable, right? Too big and mysterious for us humans, feeble, weak humans, to even begin to know him. Others might think it's kind of a waste of time. They might say, why should we even try to get to know someone that at best doesn't really care about us or at worst probably doesn't exist? Can we even know God and is he worth knowing? I believe these are two of the most important questions we can ask, Christian or not, stepping into this new year. And I also believe that the Bible has clear answers for both of those questions. This morning, we're going to come to a text that begins to answer these questions because the the answer to these questions goes across the Bible storyline, but this text begins to answer these questions for us in Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. So if you want to turn there, and if you're able, whether you're here on campus or worshiping with us online, I want us to stand for the reading of God's word for these two verses that answer these really important questions. The text will be on the screen if you want to follow along there as well. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Can we know God, and is he worth knowing? I admit these are pretty modern questions to be asking this morning, but the the heart behind them is as ancient as this book that we're studying, right? Because the question of can we know God is really the question of purpose, of whether or not we are at the center of the universe, and is there even a God to know? And if the answer is yes, then how in the world do we get to know him? The question of is God worth knowing is really the question of relationship, of whether or not the God we can know is a good person to know. And for Jeremiah and the message that he preaches as God's prophet, as God's messenger in this book for over 50 chapters, the questions of purpose and relationship are central. In fact, they are life or death questions because for Jeremiah and the people that he's preaching to, they're about to experience the most catastrophic events that are recorded in the Old Testament. And these events are recorded and recounted and explained in this book, not just as details about what happened but with explanations for why they happened in the first place. And the why goes back to the purpose for God's people and the relationship they were supposed to have with God. So I'm going to give you a 30,000-foot view of what happens to God's people so that we can then zero in on our text this morning. Context, like we've talked about many times. During Jeremiah's time, the people of God are caught between the military ambitions of Egypt and the military ambitions of Babylon. They're empires at war. And both of these empires want to build their own glory, build their own name, and the people of God live right in the middle of both of these empires. And they get swept up into it themselves, right? Even in these power struggles, they start to leverage their own military might. They start to scheme and strategize to establish themselves on the world stage, to get power and even legitimacy on that world stage as this tiny country. And the people within God's people, the people within Israel, are struggling with nationalistic arrogance. They're paranoid about who is for or against them. They've got these competing political interests even within the group, where some of them are pro-Babylon and some of them are pro-Egypt, will side with one of these bigger countries. In other words, they want to figure out who to side with in the coming war of the empires. 
And over and over again, they conveniently forget that from the very beginning of them being a people, God told them that they would be a different kind of people, a different kind of nation on the world stage, one that pointed people to God rather than got distracted and wrestled with power and dominance, that he would take care of them in the midst of all of this. And Jeremiah is the one constant reminder at this time of this reality, calling them to repent, promising God's blessing if they obey, and over and over again, they refuse. Eventually, the book of Jeremiah says that judgment can't be avoided anymore, that judgment is coming no matter what. The empires are going to go to war, and the fallout would be God's judgment on his people. So God tells Jeremiah that the only way out is through. And so his message changes from repentance to restoration. Judgment is coming because you refused to repent, but there's hope for a future where God will make everything right again, where God will restore his people. He starts preaching, give in to Babylon, trust God in the midst of judgment, because on the other side of this, God is going to fix what was broken. So at God's direction, he starts preaching this non-resistance to Babylon, and he is persecuted for it. Throughout the story, he, he actually ends up being whipped and chained He ends up being accused of treason against the country. He gets imprisoned in a cistern, which is a basically underground, really deep well. And eventually, spoiler alert, what Jeremiah said would happen actually happened. Right? Babylon invades. They capture the capital of Jerusalem. They destroy the incredible temple that Solomon had built. They carry off a lot of God's people to exile in Babylon. And even then, God's people refuse to listen to him. They refuse to listen to Jeremiah's message to, hey, go through. And a rebel group kidnaps Jeremiah and takes him to Egypt instead. The story of God's people at the end of Jeremiah looks like it's about to end. And yet we know that the story continues even in exile to a king who eventually comes to free his people. But that's getting ahead of ourselves in the story. This is the story that surrounds our text, these two verses this morning. This is the prophet and the people. This is the world stage on which these words are supposed to be heard. And at the heart of the problem is a rejection of purpose and a disregard for relationship. Our text this morning is actually at the end of this long lament that Jeremiah is giving, this this poem about grief and pain. And he grieves the way that the people are living their lives against God. It's gotten so bad that in the poem, he starts describing it like stepping stones. They're jumping from evil to evil to evil. And God warns them of judgment through Jeremiah, and still they refuse to listen. And the text says it's because they didn't know him. Over and over again, this is what God grieves in the book of Jeremiah, that his people don't know him. And how does God know that? Well, it's because of the way that they're living their lives. Can we know God, and is he worth knowing? How different would the story have been if the people of God remembered their purpose for and honored their relationship with God? How different would the story have been if the people of God listened to what God said and repented? If they actually knew God and lived like they did that? Like they, their lives proved that they knew God? So this morning, as we sit with these two verses, our goal is to comprehend what it truly means to know God and to live our lives by that. And so out of this text, I think, come these rules for life, for true life, as God the Creator King explains it. And the first rule is, don't brag, but if you have to, brag about the right thing. And the second is, get to know God for who He really is. Pretty simple here. So I'm going to start with that first rule. Don't brag, but if you have to, 
brag about the right thing. Over and over again, the Bible calls his people, calls God's people to humility, right? An appropriate humility, a, a humility that understands and, and acts in relationship to God and to each other. And humility and bragging don't tend to coexist, right? Many times we think they're the opposite of each other, but, but God doesn't do that in this text. In this text, he doesn't put bragging against humility. Instead, he puts the wrong kind of bragging against the right kind of bragging, right? Don't brag about that. If you're going to brag, brag about this. And so what he goes on to do is he lists three idols that we humans tend to put our trust in, to put our hope in. Three idols that, that promise significance and satisfaction and security and over and over again fail to deliver that. God says, take a really good look because these accomplishments, these resume builders, these values, they evolve from God, good to God really quickly. And the key indicator that this transformation has happened is that you're bragging about the wrong things. So what are the wrong things that God gives us? These idols that go from good to God. Look at the text, verse 23. This is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom. The first idol that God warns us against is this disintegration of wisdom. Because wisdom is a good that becomes a God not when we pursue it or even when we enjoy it, but when we brag about it. When we boast in our wisdom and we forget the source of our wisdom. You see, when the Bible talks about wisdom here, it includes all of our intellect, all of our experience, all that makes up the way that we live our lives, right? It's our, our life philosophy, our model, our vision board, our five and ten year plan. Why? Because we all live our lives according to a certain kind of wisdom. Wisdom is simply the art of skillful living. It's about navigating life well. Did you make the right life Choices, the right school, the right degree, the right occupation, the right partner, the right house, the right friend group, the right timing as you're making moves in the world. How smart are you? How savvy are you? How strategic are you? Do you strategize well? And when the Bible talks about boasting, about bragging, it's not just about an inability to stop talking about yourself, but about what you put your hope in, what you depend on, what defines success for you. And again, the problem is not bragging on the good things that God brings, here, brings up here. The problem is not bragging. It's not the good things that he's bringing up here. The problem is in our inappropriate combination of the two. Bragging about the good things and in so doing, making them God things. The reality is, according to the Bible, that wisdom doesn't come out of thin air. We're not the ones who define wisdom or the good life that wisdom promises. To be truly wise, we have to be humble enough to admit that and find the true source of wisdom. Our wisdom is always derived. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But be wise, the Bible says, pursue wisdom. But remember that true wisdom is only pursued within the context of the fear of the Lord. True wisdom is only found in the source of all wisdom, God himself. Don't brag about wisdom because our wisdom isn't trustworthy. No matter how wise we are, how smart we are, our wisdom cannot promise us significance because there will always be someone wiser with more credentials and more experience. Our wisdom will not satisfy because it will always fall short. We will always fail. Our wisdom will not keep us secure when life hits us hard because we cannot strategize our way out of every life disaster. We aren't wise enough to brag about our wisdom. We'll look at verse 23 again. He doesn't just stop at wisdom. He continues, let not the strong boast of their strength, 
The second idol God warns us against is the arrogance of strength or power. The danger of letting the good of human strength become the God of power is that we get to be consumed by arrogance. There's story after story in the Bible, from Cain and Abel to Lamech and Nimrod to king after king after king, whether from within or even outside of God's people, that mistook their strength for blessing and became arrogant. They thought no one could touch them. They abused their power for their own purposes. They trust in their power to save them. And when they lose that power, they don't know who they are. A lot of stories in the Bible, they actually go nuts. Because they were trusting in their strength, in their power, in their ability to get themselves out of any situation, in their ability to dominate others and get what they want. You see, in a world of scarce resources and greedy people, power is the currency that gets you what you want. And unfortunately, we are really rich in that kind of currency as humans. How do we trust in our own strength these days? I mean, for some of us, maybe it's literally our physical strength, right? We make sure that we're physically able to take out anybody that comes our way. We intimidate and bully others with fear because we have decided that the way we're going to live our lives is to make sure we are always the strongest person in the room. For others of us, strength and power doesn't come out physically, it comes out in other ways. Right? We make sure that our words are our strength. We dominate anyone that gets close and make sure that everybody thinks twice before they speak to us, insult us, expose us in any way. Some of us might even leverage the strength of our position in our job or our family or our neighborhoods. We like the power of being the one who calls the shots. However, we are all tempted to abuse power and strength. However we are tempted to abuse power and strength, there is more than enough of that idol to go around for each of us. But this is not the way it is in God's kingdom. This is not the way it is in his word. You see, God is described in the Bible as powerful, and yet his power is contrasted with all these kings and nations and their military might. You see, God's power is unlike most sources of power. It is power upside down, or better yet, from God's vantage point, it's probably power right side up. Right? Because for God, power and strength are to be leveraged on behalf of others, not against others. It is to be leveraged to restrain evil, to restrain the bad, to encourage the good. Power is to be exercised on behalf of those who are powerless, on those who are defenseless, on the vulnerable. And yet our hearts, our sinful hearts take power and strength and we twist it into something for our own benefit rather than the benefit of others. Be strong, the Bible says, but be strong for others. Don't brag about strength because our strength fails. The reality is that no matter how physically strong we are, no matter how much power we hold, we will always be unable to be morally strong, righteous, because even if we're powerful on the outside, on the inside we are weak because we are sinful. Our strength cannot promise us significance because there will always be someone who is stronger, always someone with more power. Our strength will not satisfy because it will always fail. Our bodies break down. We lose influence. Our strength will not keep us secure when life hits us hard because we cannot brute strength our way out of all the situations that life brings us. We are not strong enough to brag about our strength. We are not powerful enough to brag about our power. Keep looking at the verse, wisdom, power, and now he comes to his final idol, let not the rich boast of their riches. Don't brag about money, God says. 
The third and final idol that God warns us about here is money, riches, treasure. Unlike wisdom and strength, money has this weird um, characteristic. It's this object, this good that is outside of us that turns into a God when we allow it to change the inside of us. Right? Money is distorted into this idol when we believe it has the power to save us. When we believe it's something to brag about. When we trust in it to keep us safe and secure. The problem with money for most of us is that we'll actually never have enough to realize that it doesn't satisfy. We'll never have enough to realize it doesn't satisfy, which is the worst part about it all. Right? We always think, if I just had that raise... If I just had that job, if I could just get that house or that car or make sure I can buy this or that, if I could, and most of us will never get to the end of the line to see that it's a lie. Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. No, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's talking about idols here, not just where you put your money. Right? Our money, our wealth, our riches, they're vulnerable. And this is the truth of the scriptures, the truth about this idol, because being rich isn't a bad thing. Right? The, the Bible talks about all the good that can be done with resources, with money. But there's typically a warning that comes with that. In the New Testament, in one of his letters to a young pastor named Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The problem isn't money, just like it isn't wisdom or strength. The problem is bragging about money, loving money, depending on money. And here's even uh, uh, the bigger kicker about it all. You don't have to be rich to make an idol out of money. You can want it so bad that you can't see anything else. That that becomes your focus. Later in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews reminds us to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The provision of God is the way to battle against this idol. Don't avoid wealth, but beware the love of money. Don't brag about money because money is fleeting. The reality is that no matter how rich we are, no matter how much wealth we've built, it will not satisfy Money cannot promise satisfaction because it will never be enough. Money cannot promise us significance because there will always be someone with more money. Money will not keep us secure because it can be taken. It can be lost. We'll never have enough money to make sure nothing bad happens to us. We'll never have enough money to save ourselves. What was the first rule of life that we had? Again, don't brag. But if you have to, brag about the right thing. Don't brag about wisdom. Don't brag about power. Don't brag about money. But if you have to brag, the text tells us to brag about the right thing, knowing God. Look at the beginning of verse 24. Let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. The most praiseworthy thing in this world, the Bible says, the only thing worth boasting about, bragging about, using as your measuring stick of success, is actually knowing God. Having a relationship with the God who created you. It's not about how big your house is, the car you drive, how much influence you gained, how smart you are, how many degrees you have to your name, how many friends you have. It's about knowing the God who made you. Notice in this text that God's value system does not elevate the professor, the athlete, or the stockbroker as the highest good, the pinnacle of success. No, in God's world, in God's life, God's way, in the kingdom of God even, 
The highest good is knowing God. I can't say that enough. The marker of a successful life is truly knowing God, not just by being well-versed in theology or ethics, in facts or principles, but actually knowing God as he has revealed himself to be. The marker of an unsuccessful life is not knowing God. You see, God speaks to another prophet named Hosea. He says, God, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Destroyed because they did not know God. And then in the New Testament, in John 17, 3, Jesus clarifies for us that in the kingdom of God, eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's all about knowing God, and yet we struggle with this. Even us in the church, where we're supposed to know God best, this week, in the devotions that we send as a church, which, if you want, they're on the website. You can sign up on the newsletter. One of the writers, Catherine McNeil, challenged us well in this when she was talking about this text. She says, We still gravitate towards the wealthy, aggressive, and powerful, assuming we'll find God's will happening in their wake and not in the quiet, overlooked places of service. We forget that the highest good is knowing God and what that actually means. This is the kingdom of God, after all. A community where God's people, where God's people are turned upside down in their values. It's God's values. A place where we fight against the pull to the wealthy, the aggressive, the powerful. We're drawn to the places of kindness and justice and righteousness. Both where those virtues are found and where those virtues are needed. Unfortunately, we struggle to believe that God's value system is upside down. And it's not because God is going against the grain, it's because we are. Right? We think it's upside down when we are the ones who are experiencing a world that has been inverted, reversed, flipped over by sin. By our sin. By our desire to determine the good life for ourselves. So are you bragging about the wrong things? Are you captured, entranced, deceived by good things turned into God things? Where in your life do you find the pull to depend too much on your wisdom, your intelligence? Where do you rely on your strength, your power, your influence, your privilege? Where do you trust in your money, your social location, your job, your wealth, your financial security? Are you just hoping for the day when you can be financially secure and that's all you see? Do you see that each of these are a good turned into a God by the way that our hearts twist it? By a heart that says, I can do it on my own. I know what needs to be done. I know what needs to get done, and I'm the one to do it. No matter what happens, I'm good. You know, no matter what disaster comes because of what I've accomplished here, because of what I've, what I've tucked away. What would it look like this year for each of us to take a step of faith to reject that kind of boasting and brag about the right thing? And this is where I think our second rule of life actually helps us get to know God for who he really is. The book of Jeremiah uses the Hebrew word translated for know over 75 times. That's an average of more than one time a chapter. Over and over again, God is calling his people to repent, not just of their sins and all the ways that they're breaking his laws, but to repent of their apparent cluelessness. Clueless because even if they might have said that they know God, their actions showed that they actually didn't. The word know is not just a word about intellectual knowledge, but about intimate knowledge, right? A knowledge of relationship, a knowledge that affects all of who we are, not just what we think, but what we do. 
So if we are supposed to know God in this particular way, then the next question would be, well, who is this God? And our text explains who he is. Look at verse 24. I am the Lord who exercises kindness on earth. The word that is translated here for kindness is the word hesed, right? And the only reason I even bring that up is not just so you know my fancy Hebrew. It's because it's a really important word in the Bible. And sometimes it's translated kindness, other times as steadfast love, but everywhere it comes up, it's trying to communicate this deep loyalty that God has to the people that he has made a covenant with, a promise with. This kindness, this hesed, is core to who God is. It is the loyal love that ties God tightly to his people. It is the faithful and devoted love that, continue, that compels, commits God to care and provide for his people. This isn't just about God being nice to people, being kind to people, but about God binding himself to his people and saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's the kind of love that brought God's people out of Egypt and sent judge after judge to save them from their enemies. It's the kind of love that shows up over and over again in the prophets, even when God's people have rejected him, have disobeyed him for the billionth time. It's the kind of love that never quits, that always pursues, that says, I'm willing to die for you if that's what it takes. And if we read the rest of the story, we know that's exactly what it took. And if that was all that was used in this passage to describe who God is, that would be more than enough. But God doesn't stop there when he's describing himself. Look at the next character trait he brings up. I am the Lord who exercises justice on earth. The concept of justice in the Bible is a concept that actually moves. Right? It's not an abstract idea to be discussed and philosophized about. It is a core reality of God that describes an unswerving desire of God to rule with integrity on behalf of others. It describes a God who is devoted to the right and fair treatment of all of his creation. It means that he is devoted to right and fair laws and punishments and societies and systems, that he wants the good life that he designed within the community of God's people to be accessible to all, regardless of their social and economic status. It means that he always makes right and true judgments as the just judge of all the earth. It means that he is on the side of the oppressed, that he looks out for the vulnerable, that he leverages his power for the powerless, that he understands human nature deeply enough to know that there's this dark, twisted heart that seeks to overpower and take advantage of the least in society. It means that he demands justice among his people because he is the very definition of justice. And yet that's not where God stops in describing himself. He gives us a third characteristic. I am the Lord who exercises righteousness on earth. By righteousness here, God means that he is the one who sets right standards. That these standards are not arbitrary, but are based on his character. That his character is morally sound. He is good. He is righteous. He is the standard for all morality. And he will always do what is right. This is the God we serve. This is the God we love. So the question to how do we come to know God in this way as one who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness is answered by having a relationship with him. We know God by being in relationship with him. I know, that is super simple. I was building up to something super clever and all I said was have a relationship with God. I know that's super simple, but that's what the Bible says when it uses the word know. Have a relationship with God. It's not just about knowing about God, but actually knowing God himself. It's about being led by God through his word and by the spirit to, into a relationship with him. The true life 
that he gives in that relationship. It's about godliness and being part of this good life, the truly good life, by being in relationship with him. So then the question is, how do we do that? How do we come to know God by being in relationship with him? Well, there's a bunch of simple answers to that. By listening to what he tells us in his word and receiving it as actually from him. By actually applying it to our lives through the Holy Spirit. By, by coming to understand who God is, his nature, his character, as he has revealed it in what he says and does. We come to know God by hearing his call to obey and actually doing what he commands. We come to know God by seeing his love and coming to us and making a way back to himself and rejoicing in that love day in and day out. We come to know God as we pray, as we gather together as God's people in whatever way we can in a pandemic, but still gathering together to remind each other of who God is and what he has done. We come to know God through the Bible, through obedience, through remembering and rejoicing in his love, through prayer, through gathering. We come to know God in all of these simple, easy rhythms that we just keep doing. We build relationship like any good relationship, through rhythms. And in all of these ways, we study God. We learn about his character and his conduct. We come to understand who he is and what he does. And in studying God, like J.R. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, in studying God, we are led to God. And as the final phrase of our text makes clear, we come to know God by opening ourselves up to all the ways in which he wants to make us like him. To make us into people who exercise kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Look at what he says at the end of verse 24. In these I delight, declares the Lord. In kindness and justice and righteousness, in the exercise and practice of these realities, I delight. That's what God says. It's pretty crystal clear what he's saying here. The mark of success, the mark that we've made it, the only thing worth bragging about is knowing God. And knowing God is knowing him as the God who exercises love, kindness, like that steadfast love, who exercises justice on behalf of others, who exercises righteousness. Not just one who is kind, just, and righteous, but one who actually does kindness, justice, and righteousness. And if this is what God delights in, that to truly know him is to be people who also delight in these same practices. It is these same qualities that those who know God, who are in relationship with him, practice in their daily lives, and in so doing, they show that they actually know God. Let me show you what I mean. Later in Jeremiah, in chapter 22, God speaks about a king who actually obeyed him. In verses 15 through 16, he says, He did, speaking about the king, he did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. And then God asks this rhetorical question. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. When God calls us to know him, he calls us to be a people who demonstrate that we know him by being people who practice his kindness, his justice, his righteousness. People who are ready and willing to demonstrate grace and mercy at the drop of a hat to properly assess what we see and act on behalf of others, to do what God says we should do and not do what God says we shouldn't do. It is our love and care and concern for those who are struggling and who need help, our desire for and practice of justice and righteousness that God equates with knowing him. There's a parallel passage to this in Micah 6 eight, and I know I'm jumping all over scripture. I'm just trying to give you this whole picture of what God is talking about. In Micah 6 eight, God tells the prophet Micah, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, 
and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God delights in. Not just the characteristics themselves, kindness, justice, righteousness, but the exercise of those characteristics. Because those who know God act like God. Because that is what he delights in. God's desire is that we would know him as one who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness. And as we seek to know God this year, to know God better, is this the God we know? I mean, this is the God we have to deal with, right? This is the God we are confronted with in the Bible. The question is, will we deal with him as he opens up himself to us in his word? Will we allow him to deal with us as he opens us up in his word? Will we commit ourselves to him, to being with him in prayer and among his people? However, again, we can connect in this pandemic. To so identify ourselves with him that what bothers him bothers us, and what delights him delights us us. The Bible says that the only way to do that, the only real way to know God, to be able to do everything that I just talked about, is if God is the one who initiates. Here's what I mean. In Jesus, we have the complete picture of who God is. So the rule of life is not get to know God for who he really is, period, but get to know God for who he really is in Jesus the one who suffered and died, the one who was crucified for the people who over and over again rejected him and went after idols and boasted in their accomplishments rather than in their God. The aftermath of Jeremiah 9 is that God had to act in history in order to change the situation of his people, of humanity. We were unable to do it ourselves, so he had to do it in Jesus. The reality is that we would not be able to know God if it weren't for him revealing himself to us in the first place. We would not be able to have a relationship with God if it weren't for Jesus in the first place. And in humility, we kind of need to admit that the command that God gives us to know him in Jeremiah 9, 23-24 is actually really hard. It doesn't come naturally to us. We need God's help. Our hearts so easily gravitate to the broken value system that we've grown up in. Our hearts so easily gravitate to the smartest and the strongest and the richest. And we are weak. And we need someone stronger than us, wiser than us, with all the resources in all of creation to save us from ourselves, to provide for us, to enable us to actually be loving and kind, to actually be just, to actually be righteous, not just say that we are. And this is exactly what he did in the gospel. This is why Paul actually quotes our passage in the letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, the very first chapter. He starts talking about the gospel, and this is what he says, starting at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jump to verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It's not about human wisdom. It's not about human strength. The gospel is foolish to those who don't see the upside-down kingdom of God, but to those who do, it is God's power on full display. It is true wisdom and true strength. So Paul keeps going. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Who is Paul talking to? He's talking about the wise and the powerful and the well-born, the ones who tend to have money, but he's talking to people who are not that. He's speaking to this particular church in Corinth, and as we overhear it as this particular church in Streamwood, the reality is that the majority of us were none of these things. 
wise, powerful, well-born, rich, and still God chose us. Look at the next verse. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Big compliment. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Still a big compliment. God chose the lowly things of this world to despise things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Do you see what God's value system is here? Look at the next verse. So that no one may boast before him. God doesn't care about how wise you are, how rich you are, how powerful you are. He loves you because of you. Because of him and because he made you. Because you are in his image. God chose us on purpose. So that none of us can brag about what we did to get in. So that none of us would get caught up bragging about the wrong things. So that instead we can brag about the right thing. And Paul continues in verse 30. It is because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, here's the quote, therefore as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast that we are in Christ. Our only boast as Christians, our only brag is that we are in Christ That in Christ, we know God. And being in Christ, we have access to the wisdom of God. Being in Christ, he becomes our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. We no longer count on our own strength or our own power as what validates our lives, but Christ himself. He is the one who frees us. And this is for everyone who believes. J.I. Packer, in that same book that I quoted, theologian J.I. Packer, says it like this. He says, the victim of Calvary is now, so to speak, Loose and at large, so that anyone anywhere can enjoy the same kind of relationship with him as the disciples had in the days of his flesh. So that anyone anywhere can know God for who he reveals himself to be, for who he actually is. These are our two two rules for life in this year out of Jeremiah 9. Don't brag, but if you have to, brag about the right thing, knowing God. And get to know God for who he really is. In Jesus. Can we know God? Is he even worth knowing? In 2021, my prayer is that in Christ we might realize that he is more than worth knowing. That he is the one who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness as the only true king. So as I come to the end now, I want us to pray. And I want us to pray that we might realize that his kingdom is coming. That he wants us to be a part of it, but he wants us to be a part of it on his terms as he describes himself, as he describes his kingdom, truly knowing him in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we we come before you knowing that, struggling even with this command to know you, it can be so hard sometimes. We're so easily caught up in so many different things. We pray that in this new year, you would enable us and empower us to know you for who you reveal yourself to be that you would help us to not make you in our own image, but that you would shape us in your image. That we would know your steadfast love, your true justice, your righteousness, the only real righteousness. And may we know all of it in Jesus, by his grace, not white-knuckling it, trying to figure it out on our own, but trusting in the grace of your gospel, in the good news of your kingdom where everything is upside down. Or, for once in history, everything is right side up. 
Help us to step into this year with the right perspective on you, our God, that we might brag about having the understanding to know you, that you have given to us in Jesus. Amen.